And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was recorded on December 18th, 2020. Steve Gallen is the Director of Land and Facilities at the Schuylkill Center for Environmental Education, the largest privately held green space in the city of Philadelphia. He graduated from Penn State University with a bachelor's in wildlife and fisheries science and a minor in forest science. He is also an ISA certified arborist with 19 years experience in managing trees in a variety of settings. He spent over a decade as an arborist working for the Bartlett Tree Experts, servicing residential and commercial properties on Maryland's eastern shore, the mountains of southwest Virginia, and finally managing the Philadelphia office where he cared for trees both along tight city streets and out into the expansive landscapes of the suburbs. It was during this time that he came to know the Schuylkill Center a 340-acre nature preserve within the city of Philadelphia, protected in perpetuity under conservation easement. He volunteered his time at the Native Plant Sales where he answered questions about trees. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on here. Happy to talk about uh, all that we do here at the Schuylkill Center. We, uh, we have a large breadth of, uh, of different programs that, that happen and, you know, kind of first and foremost, we're an environmental education center. Uh, we have a nature preschool um, that operates, takes uh, kids three to five years old out into the forest every day. Since COVID hit, we uh, moved all of our classrooms to an all outdoor model. Um, the kindergarten included, uh, they are outdoors enjoying the, uh, on a day today, uh, they are outdoors in the snow all day long, um, enjoying the forest. We have an after-school program uh, that also got changed a little bit this year. And, uh, you know, uh, taking children that are virtual in their schools and providing a longer period of time where they come to us and spend uh, time outdoors playing and, uh, you know, enjoying all that the, the, the property has to offer. Summer camp's a big, uh, a big uh, draw for the area where nature discovery is uh, happening every single day of the summer. Um, it's visiting school groups and uh, we even do outreach into the Philadelphia school system. Uh, we have a environmental art program uh, that's really unlike any other that is located at a nature center. It's focused on implementing art in a way that interacts with the environment as opposed to a sculpture that is just set into the forest or a landscape, uh, a landscape portrait or something. 
a good example of that is our rain yard feature. It's a sculpture that takes water uh, off of our roof system and puts it through a, a, a series of troughs that is interactive. The children can play with that water and see how it infiltrates through concrete, meadow habitat, uh, lawn, wood chips, uh, and, and then it all gets retained in a bioretention area so that it's like a rain garden that everybody can enjoy. So that, that's what environmental art means to us. Our wildlife clinic takes in sick and injured uh, uh, orphaned animals, uh, tries to uh, re-release as many as possible. It's a really uh, important connection to the people that really care about animals. I know we're here to talk about trees, but uh, it's been my experience that for as much pe as people love trees, they love animals even more. So, um, you know, the, the peregrine falcons that uh, fledge off on City Hall and take their first flight, which is usually a spiral down to the ground, um, they inevitably get scooped up and brought to us to be raised and re-released. So um, it's really important for endangered species, but also people bring us squirrels and bunnies and pigeons, um, all animals uh, that we're allowed to rehabilitate. We, we aim to re-release. And of course, uh, you know, the, the department that I'm working in, land and facilities, um, we, uh, we have a stewardship program uh, where it's our, our aim to educate folks about how to care for the land, take care of the environment, and uh, we do that in a lot of different ways. You know, that's really interesting that you're talking about the animals and, uh, you know, people, maybe a lot of people don't realize how important and critical animals play in the role of seed dispersal for many of our large trees, uh, including squirrels. Uh, you know, squirrels get a very bad rap, I think. Um, I love watching them plant because they're so industrious. Uh, I don't think we take the same care as they do <laughs> planting seeds uh, when they're out there. Um, but uh, they are critical in, in, in our forest uh, ecosystem. Interesting thing about squirrels, Eva, is they're also tomato gourmets. Have you ever noticed that? I'm sure of it, yes. Yes. Well, and, a, lot of, a lot of birds actually disperse seed too, whether it's through their guano or um, whether it's just inadvertently dropping a seed. Um, but most of the time it's in the guano. Absolutely. I mean, uh, while many people kind of hear the word squirrel and, and might gloss over that, um, we've noticed an interesting trend with the squirrels that come to us. They are being born earlier each year. Um, they are having more generations. They're, the later generation is coming to us. We've uh, had a bit of a contest for years about when the first squirrel uh, is going to come to us, uh, you know, little baby squirrel. And uh, unfortunately, that, that date has been moving, and uh, you know, earlier and earlier. Do, do you think um, that has anything to do with the, the population of uh, predatory birds, which we didn't have for a long time because of DDT? I mean, uh, it could. Uh, I think that I correlate it most to climate and change in climate. It's a uh, 
you know, how you, you, you're out there working in the, the landscape, looking at these pests and all. And I, I bet you could talk about some of the changes that you've seen in the pest uh, populations and all as well. Yeah, nature works at all levels and it's way more sophisticated than humans can begin to uh, believe or understand. So yeah, pest populations are way up and we're seeing, you know, I think with those baby squirrels, last year's mild winter uh, definitely would be a factor, right? I mean, warm-blooded animals. You know, when I'm out in the field with students, I see um, plants that are doing things that they typically didn't do 10 years ago, didn't do five years ago. You know, somebody was showing some pictures of plants that were were budding up and uh, I've seen maples that are, they look like they're ready to burst right now um, just before the snowstorm, especially silver maples and red maples. The, the buds were swollen and ready to burst. So yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> No. <laughs> but we do know that there is climate change. It's not, uh, it is reality, whether you want to believe it or not. <laughs> As plant people, um, you know, we see those things. The Schuylkill Center has all these different fingers reaching out, whether folks are interested and connected to the animals or um, art, for instance, there was a climate uh, tempestry project where the art department took and they crocheted graphs of um, climate change over each individual year so that all the participants uh, created their own year and then visually you were able to see these different colors in the graphs uh, in these tempestries that uh, that changed over time so um, we're reaching people and trying to explain about the change that's happening in in a lot of different ways and then you've had the benefit I guess of some of the invasives that have moved up south have been have found a home at the Schuylkill Center for a long time. In fact, let's get right to it. Talk about invasives at the Schuylkill Center. Yeah, we, we have our fair share. It's, uh, uh, boy, going back in our history, there's been a lot of uh, development uh, of this land. Um, we've only been in existence since 1950. So, I'm sorry, 1965. So 50 years. And, uh, you know, prior to that, uh, people were changing things, uh, changing the the land, and that opened up a, a opportunity for the invasives to come in. And I'm I'm seeing it change right now. Just in my five six years that I've been here, the Amir cork tree is really taking over as the the ash trees are are declining due to emerald ash borer. We had some ailanthus trees, uh, tree of heaven, and as the spotted lanternfly is coming in and killing those, they're fading out. We, uh, we have a lot of the invasive uh, devil's walking stick, the aurelia, that, is, uh, that forms these big, uh, big uh, monocultures. And uh, we've been attacking those with, uh, through our tree vitalized uh, grants and trying to replant the, the big groves of these, these uh, devil's walking stick. And, you know, it's a, a mile a minute. One of the ones that I just really do 
struggle with is the Japanese stilt grass. It's uh, kind of a a free-for-all with some of these invasives. And we are always struggling with what resources do we have as a private institution, privately funded, you know, to to kind of battle these uh, so that they don't all take over. You're, it's a laboratory situation for you. You know, I think it's a whole different series of goals and objectives is you guys are on the front line with managing an ecology that uh, in many ways has escaped. And yet there's a reality, which is we want to bring it back. But I'm going to put a question out to both of you guys, because I have uh, just this short, you know, Wikipedia definition because carbon sink comes into the conversation. And, and uh, you know, a carbon sink is any reservoir, natural or otherwise, that accumulates and stores some carbon-containing chemical compound for an indefinite period and thereby lowers the concentration of CO2 from the atmosphere. So my question to you both is the, the Schuylkill Center is still a viable carbon sink, right? I mean, it's still performing a use. Mile a minute can work to store carbon, right? Am I wrong here? Well, mile a minute isn't annual. Um, so it's, you know, uh, uh, re-releasing that carbon much quicker than uh, a tree might. Um, okay, so, yes. Um, but, you know, that is kind of uh, one of my saving graces with some of these invasives. Well, at least they're storing carbon. You know, they may not be providing all the services that uh, wildlife needs or pollinators, um, our native pollinators. But, you know, in the case of those cork trees that I mentioned, they're casting shade to keep other invasives from getting totally out of control. So we approach, uh, approach these, the, the removal of invasives carefully knowing that we have to measure the amount of uh, our resources and ability to continue to manage any areas or changes that we make. I, I think it's interesting because there are some places where you see them using chemicals to kill off the invasives, but then they don't have a plan to replant it. And I know that, at, and I've been to this Google Center, I know that you have to have a plan before you do anything to remove, because if you don't have that plan, you're going to be right back in the same situation you were. And of course, devil's walking sticks, uh, Aurelia, is a good example. You see it all through the Wissahickon, but if you don't have a good plan to replace it, you might as well just leave it there. Yeah, we we approach it in a measured way. Um, And, you know, while it'd be great to just release the chainsaws and the stump treatments. Um, for the long term, it's it's not going to work unless you have that follow-up and uh, continue to manage an area. Really, a lot of what I'm trying to do is see uh, canopy gaps closed, and then I feel like I can start to establish those understory layers, those native understory layers that are going to do the most good for a lot of our pollinators and and smaller wildlife. If you had black locust and black cherry uh, creating canopy, is that what you're saying? And then you have a little bit more leeway uh, at ground level? 
Yes. Um, although, uh, you know, Black Locust and, and uh, Black Cherry are pretty early successional species. Right. Um, and that's one of the challenges I'm dealing with in my native forest right now is we're primarily a, uh, you know, early successional forest. Uh, we have a lot of black cherry, um, uh, sassafras, uh, tulip poplar, and they're just not as long lived as, uh, you know, some of our other oak species or <laughs> even maples. So we're, we're changing not only in terms of our successional uh, uh, cohort, but uh, changing in terms of the amount of invasive pressure as well. So it's, it's a lot to, to be dealing with. And, and that's why we have to be so measured when we, we try to interact with the, the limited resources that we have. Do you do any seeding uh, with tree seeds underneath your uh, covered gaps, uh, your canopies that are actually closed over? Uh, has anybody ever done any, um, you know, heavy planting of acorns or heavy planting of, other type of tree seed that to, and then cover it over with a type of maybe leaf litter or mulch that would just just really hammer the area with seed so that um, they could come up and and present themselves. I know in Europe they're doing this uh, with small trees that are I mean really smaller little saplings that they're planting hundreds if not thousands in a very small area and then leaving them duke it out to grow into these micro uh, forests that, that they're planting all around Paris, for example. Have you tried any of that kind of experimentation? There's been a lot of experimentation that's happened over the years. Um, everything from daylighting to planting, uh, you know, larger specimen trees. One of our big challenges here at Schuylkill Center is deer. So unless we can put up a deer uh, fencing or keep the deer out of an area, those seeds just do not get to a manageable or a, a above the browse line. So really, uh, when we do do a planting, we're, we're counting on uh, like restoration grades, small containerized trees generally as the the initial growth and uh, we see a lot of uh, uh, regeneration happening just from our our native seed bank but we are also battling a lot of the uh, ralia um, a lot of the stilt grass uh, different vines that will grow up those trees so in order to go in and continually manage uh, those planting zones, the idea of like large seed coverings would be difficult. I worked with a five-star grant with the zoo project for planting our carbon footprint, if you will, for the zoo animals. And uh, there were a couple, pro a couple interesting projects that they did in Fairmount Park, which was uh, fencing areas in with chain link fence and uh, going in and heavily planting with small seedlings and then closing it off and not letting anybody in there. Uh, they were totally away from deer. And within maybe about five or six years, it was just a massive thicket of native plants, which I think is, is an interesting concept and uh, a, a way maybe to make a, a sink for native plants down the line. So if you're looking to get seed, these, these uh, little mini micro areas of forest, 
uh, actually can act as a, as a seed bank for future restoration projects. Things like that that I, I think are kind of creative and, and different that would actually help places like the Schuylkill Center in the future. And, and as you said, deer browse is, is really rampant. And, uh, you know, you go through the Wissahickon or you go through uh, parts of Fairmount Park and there's no understory. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of the big challenges here. Another challenge that we're often faced with is our invasive earthworm problem. You know, it's changing our soil chemistry and uh, that really impacts the, the ability of trees to seed and establish. It's, uh, it's denuding the, the forest soil of a lot of nutrients and that duff layer, that, that really organic fluff that those young trees love. Wow. So with the earthworm debate, and I guess I did want to ask you, you know, if you did collar Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates at a cocktail party and they reached into their checkbook and said, Steve, whatever it takes, make the Schuylkill Center a fantastic destination and ecological education resource. How would you tackle the earthworm question? Well, uh, we did have studies done um, where uh, reducing the pH level of the soils using uh, pelletized sulfur um, over a multiple year basis did lower the earthworm populations. And it was found, this was done, boy, 10, almost 15 years ago. And it was found that, that it did lower the earthworm populations, but that they seemed to uh, rebound uh, once the, the application stopped. 10 years uh, went by and these earthworm studies were kind of forgotten about, but uh, revisited by Philly U. And um, they, uh, they looked around and they did find a reduced level of earthworms in the study area. So while it, it didn't really um, promise great potential at first, I mean, to treat 340 acres with pelletized sulfur does not seem like a great idea. It does, uh, it does maybe uh, uh, lend itself like right now, um, when we do a planting, we will treat with pelletized sulfur mm. around the trees that we're putting in just to try to give a little bit of a buffer um, for those young trees that are being established. What a great idea. What a great idea. Because when you had me out a couple of years ago, you did walk me through an area and I remember that you were pretty excited that you felt like this is a parcel and you showed me, you know, new plantings with deer protection. Talk about the species and where you source that stuff. And I'm sorry, I can't be more specific on what location it was, other than it felt like it was a pilot area that was had turned the corner a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we, we have a number of those places. You know, I've been here for five, six years. And when I've been approaching these uh, planting areas, uh, I try to, to throw a lot of spaghetti and uh, we're planting with, uh, with a wide diversity of plants, uh, you know, 20, 30, uh, 40 different species uh, in an acre. And, you know, knowing that 
not all of those trees are going to to live or, um, you know, only parts of those uh, that species list are canopy trees, upper canopy trees. Um, and uh, more than likely, I, I, I walked you through one of those planting areas. If it was, for instance, one of the, the first planting projects I did here uh, down in our 50th anniversary Jubilee Grove planting site, mm. um, we took an area that was almost all stilt grass and aurelia and uh, and a few ash trees that we knew at that time even that their time was limited and we replanted and uh, I remember my daughter who's now six uh, being in my backpack you know carrier and sitting her underneath one of those ash trees so that she could take a nap Um, now those trees those little restoration grade trees that were waist high you know the red buds jumped they're they're reaching up 12 even more feet into the air um we planted a diversity of oak species uh you know trying to get some hackberries and some basswood trees uh different shrubs as well and you know uh with that planting it was a a jubilee grove that uh, we were inviting people down to and while we were approaching it with a the eye of restoration or stewardship, we wanted it to be a gathering space for people. And so we erected deer fencing and then we left some trees, maybe even 20% of the trees outside of these deer fenced areas with tree tube guards, the, the mesh kind that allow airflow and such. And unfortunately, the deer just clobbered us with those, even with those tree tubes on there. We, we lost almost all of those trees, but we were trying to blend an aesthetic and a usability for our, our visitors. And so, you know, it, it, we're at the point now where um, most of our trees are above the browse line that, that high deer fencing is going to come down and maybe I'll be able to go back in with some uh, smaller containment areas to exclude the deer and try to reestablish those those plants that we lost. Have you ever used shrubs like spice bush to interplant with your trees so that the deer aren't going to be bothering them? Have you used them as a cover? Uh, spice bush does pretty well naturally on our property. It's one that the deer do not go after right. too much. Um, maybe it's the taste or the the fragrance. And uh, you know, uh, one of my favorite swallowtail caterpillars uh, feeds on those spice bush leaves. So you know, it's a it's really a a great plant. The swi- the spice bush swallowtail. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I hear people when they have a property, the first thing they do is they cut down their spice bush and I go, what? Why would you do such a thing? Because it's a monoculture. Well, you know what? Maybe there's a reason why it's a monoculture for it's a now. Great plant. You can plant in between, try to use a native plant that deer don't like as a foil to keep them away from your newly emerging seeds that are coming out of the ground. And, you know, so what if it's as far as you, your eye can see, it's, it's habitat. Absolutely. I mean, I, I do like a spice bush. The the witch hazels, um, you know, as long as they're not too exposed to deer, they can do all right. Yeah. Hey, Eva, I, I just realized, you know, Steve's the perfect guy to ask uh, the question that comes up in different contexts because you 
you, Stephen Gowen, worked as an arborist in the South, in parts of Virginia. And one thing that comes up on the podcast uh, fairly often is this northern northward migration of species. Or plant creep, as they call it. Plant creep and extinction. Um, there's another cool term. You used it the other day, Steve. What is it when species move north? Plant creep works for me. Okay, um, plant creep. <laughs> you know, it's a uh, it is something that we've been uh, been you know really looking at. Uh, I think uh, I don't know. It's hard to say what is a native plant. Like native to when to where. That's a big conversation. And to um, what for really? Because the soils aren't the same, right? Right, exactly. Um, and so maybe there's some purists that that might not consider uh, willow oak a native plant, you know, in in uh, Philadelphia here. And but we do know that it, it grows really well down south. And although I really do tend to go to native plants. Um, we have uh, just planning for the future. We we've begun planting, you know, things like willow oak, um, you know, the the Carolina silver bell, different species that that do better down south. Uh, bald cypress, even uh, I've been introducing to some of our wet areas, and at the same time, I I am choosing to do less and less sugar maple planting or, uh, you know, some of our oaks, which our oaks, you know, they, they struggle on this property, uh, not only because of change in climate, but um, the, the change in microbial activity of the soil because of all that development, it's just broke down so many of those networks in the soil, changes in pH. So it, it, I think that the oaks struggle because of that as well. Well, there's some big studies right now about the, you know, about microbes, and one being that uh, fungi are definitely more connected with woody plants and bacteria more to perennials and annuals, so that it, you know, they they don't have the same lifespan as a as a fungi does. So that you know, if you can get this massive mycorrhiza growing, and uh, you have that connection with oak trees and other um, more acidic loving trees and typically find it with the ericaceous species um, that would be ideal if if you can get some lower story plants like some of the shrubs that rely on that and then interplant your bigger trees because they will work together as a as a cohesive community to create those large mats of, of fungi yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of our longest running restoration sites, uh, we call it Penn's Native Acres. There is uh, one of the best spring ephemeral wildflower displays, uh, I think, in the Philadelphia region. And um, they, the, 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 those spring ephemerals seem to do really well in that site. And it's also one of the least disturbed areas with the the largest trees that create a continual canopy and um you know we've we've been working on it for a long time now uh 12 almost 15 years so that's a real feature of the property that those plant communities seem to do the best kind of coming down to the 
last few minutes of our podcast. And we always ask our guests the infamous question, no, we're not going to ask you to pick your favorite child. We're going to ask you to pick uh, maybe a group of your favorite trees that you think are important to our plant communities here in Southeastern PA, or maybe, maybe not here in Southeastern PA, maybe there's, maybe they're from further South, but if you can give us some of yours, we would love to hear that. Maybe we want to just call it a spirit tree, Steve. What's your spirit? There you go. That's a good way to call it. You know, that's a tough question for an arborist. Uh, You know, I have so many favorite trees for so many different situations. Uh, One of my favorite trees is a swamp white oak. Some of the folks here have been kind of uh, making fun of me saying that in 50 years, they're going to look around and say, why are all these swamp white oaks? Somebody must really like them. Talking about a tree that seems to do so well in so many different places and ways. And, um, you know, I'm sure that that you're familiar with the the work that's been done, uh, Doug Ptolemy and things about how many different species of caterpillar and oak tree will uh, host and and the benefits that that plays out in our bird communities and uh, a swamp white oak uh, certainly is up there on my list of favorite trees. Well, that's a pretty a good pick, I'll tell you. Um, I don't think 20 or 30 years ago we would have found as many as we do in the city of Philadelphia because they're now using it as a street tree because it can tolerate drying conditions as well, drought conditions. It's a very resilient plant. And uh, there's a lot of diversity, even within the species, of the, how they look and how they respond to a, a site. Uh, I think that's a really great one to pick. And how have you been seeing much in the way of bacterial leaf scorch impacting our, our white oaks, particularly our swamp white oaks? No, knock on wood, they continue to leave the white oak family alone. Uh, but at the same time, uh, showing up, if not more aggressively, than more omnipresently on the red oak trees, red oak, black oak. And, and so that's, that's really what I'm thinking is that my, my black oaks and my red oaks, that they're kind of loners um, for, for an oak tree that's supposed to live for 500 years or whatever. Um, you know, so if I can get those white oaks mixed in, I, I really try. And I, I, I tend to plant more heavily in the white oaks family. Yeah, yeah. When I was at the university, we did a lot of uh, uh, trials on uh, Xylella fastidiosa, and that disease was found in your shingle oaks, your red, your red oak, your pin oak, even your willow oak um, had some leaf scorch. And you know, it was it was really odd. We even found it in Carpinus. That's a tough disease, and, and you really don't know how far that disease goes. It's, it's very much like uh, the spotted lanternfly where, you know, we're finding that it, it has a close association with Chiananthus, you know, the fringe tree or uh, some of the other trees. So we don't know all of that, but definitely the white oaks, if you have a choice to plant something right now, I would plant a white oak over. But then we don't want to also get a monoculture either. <laughs> I completely agree. That's where that um, that planting list of, you know, 20 to 40 different trees uh, really comes in. It's, uh, it, you know, we, we've put about 1500 trees on the property since I've been here. 
And, um, you know, I don't know what the future holds. I don't have a crystal ball. Um, what seems like a good decision today may not have been the best decision. In fact, Spotted Lantern Fly came in and is really affecting all of our sumac trees. Um, so uh, that the native uh, ruse. Yes, uh, mm. you know, a couple different of the the ruse species uh, we planted mm. into our restoration sites, thinking. That's a quick grower. It's going to be a, a neat species to have, you know, something pretty cool about a staghorn sumac with its big uh, red uh, berry uh, berry clusters. But um, unfortunately, they, they're declining and I, I wouldn't have seen that uh, coming, you know, two, three years ago. Yeah, I continue to say something hopeful about spotted lanternfly, which is, uh, my sense is it could be optimism gone off the rails, but I think SLF populations are going to diminish a little bit. I always feel I like so Penn State is saying kind of, they don't want to be on record with it, but observationally, your neck of the woods, upstate PA, uh, some of those ground zero communities of two years ago, they're, they're starting to see a, a pretty significantly reduced I think it's going to be much like the gypsy moths in the 1980s where, where we actually saw uh, it come in with a force and it cleaned out some of our oaks. But as we used um, BT, um, we saw a decline and we really haven't had any large touch wood population outbreaks like we did back then. So I think that, that that spotted lanternfly is going to go the same way. It just needs to it just needs to go through and let's get rid of it and move on. But we have to end our show today. So we do appreciate you being here, Stephen, and we're so thrilled that you were able to talk with us about the Schuylkill Center and all the good works that you're doing there, especially with children, because they are who we need to teach and who will be looking after our forest long after we're gone. So, oh, man, seeing those five-year-olds uh, clustered around a little uh, fire pit the other day on a cold day the day before the winter storm was really, really cool. And, you know, Eva, Steve is a special arborist hybrid because you don't find too many arborists that are arborist ex-naturalist. You know, and I'm listening to him talk, and I'm thinking, he's seeing the big picture here. And, uh, yeah, not uh, everybody does. Yeah. No. They're just in the one tree, and that's all they see. Right. Steve is a stilt grass, mile a minute kind of arborist, and that's my kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks well, again, Stephen, for being with us today. Happy to be here. And, you know, if uh, listeners are in the area, please come out and enjoy our miles of free trails. I hope it brings a restorative experience that, that really serves our our health and our benefit and uh, hopefully they get to see some cool trees while they're at it. And do you want to share the website with them? The www.schuylcenter.org and uh, look for our native plant sale as well, please. Great. Thank you so much. Awesome, Steve. Take care. Bye. See you again. Bye. Thank you.
Thank you.